Amen. Well, this week, we enter into the third of the four, what we call the two ways messages at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Two two weeks ago, we saw as Jesus introduced this idea with, with the metaphor of these two ways, the two roads that he called them, if you remember that, the narrow gate and the wide gate. There, there were those who entered by the narrow gate, that is, they were truly converted to Christianity, and there were those who entered by the wide gate. They were not true converts, but instead believed themselves to be. Those who truly entered the narrow gate and who walked on the hard path, stay there, amen, by God's grace. And what did Jesus say about them? He said, there are few. There are few on that path. Many on the wide, easy road, few on the narrow road. And then last week, Austin showed us how in in verses 15 through 20, in Matthew 7, there are two types of teachers. True teachers and false teachers. False teachers are those calling out from the wide road, come, follow this way. And true teachers are those who are on the narrow road calling out, come, repent of your sin, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. This week's sermon, the passage here, we will see Matthew taking that camera lens as he watches Jesus preaching in the Sermon on the Mount and really zoom in into Jesus. And we see Jesus' face and we hear from Jesus what many people believe would be considered Jesus' most difficult teaching. This is what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about the passage we'll be studying today. He says, These surely are in many ways the most solemn and solemnizing words ever uttered in this world, not only by any man, but even by the Son of God himself. Indeed, were any man to utter such words... We should feel compelled not only to criticize, but even to condemn him. They are words spoken by the Son of God himself, and therefore demand our most earnest attention. I want to read for us our passage this morning, and this week, rather than reading the passage on the screen, this is very important. I want you to open your Bible and see it. Right. So if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in front of you in the pew. The passage we will be reading is on page 812. If you're new to to Christianity and and studying the Bible, the the big numbers are the chapter headings, the chapter numbers, and then the little numbers are the verses. And so when you read, if we say Matthew chapter 7, which is the chapter we'll be in on page 812, you're going to be looking at that big number 7 as the chapter, and then the little Numbers there are the verses, and we will be in verses 21 through 23. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray.
Father, there is not a one of us in here who wants to hear those words. None of us wants to be found on the day of judgment not to truly be trusting in Jesus Christ. And so for all of us, God, these words are, are, are terrifying. So we ask this morning that, that as we read and study this passage that you would give us assurance in Christ, that you would give us clarity about our own faith, and that we would not have a false assurance. God, let me never, ever be a preacher from this pulpit who gives false assurance. And let no member here in this church or future member of this church ever be one who has false assurance. But Father, may we be a church who truly seeks Christ. And so are built on the foundation of your word and are nourished by your spirit through the word. We ask for clarity and understanding this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I want you this morning to keep your Bibles open, please, as we look at this passage. I want to make sure that you can see that I am speaking from this text, all right? And that I'm not making anything up. So all we're going to do is walk through this passage and let the Word speak. God's Word is without error. It is authoritative. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the text we're looking at this morning is a quotation from a sermon spoken by Jesus Christ, our Savior. That doesn't mean, despite what the red letters in your Bible might say, that doesn't mean that this text is more authoritative than Paul's letters or Peter's letters or anything that Moses ever said. Because, why? Because Jesus spoke by the Spirit, and Peter and Paul and Moses spoke by the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God, and the words of these men carries equal weight. And yet, when Jesus speaks as God himself, we, we don't have the fleshly excuse that we sometimes have of saying, oh, that's, that's just Paul. Oh, that's just the apostles' interpretation. That's a bad excuse. Anytime. That's a sinful excuse to ignore Scripture. But that, that out that we sometimes take is not available to you with this passage. These words are from Jesus himself. And so here's what we see in this passage. Two, two truths. The first is this. Not all who confess Christ do his will. And thus, not all who confess Christ will be saved. The second truth we see is that not all who do works in Christ's name are known by Christ. And thus, not all who do works in Christ's name will be saved. Let's put it simply. Just because you say Jesus is Lord doesn't mean you'll be saved. Or, just because you do works in Christ's name does not mean you will be saved. So let's look at where we get that from the passage. Verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That, 
That first part there, those, those who say, Lord, Lord, that's, that's talking about those who hear the good news of Jesus Christ, they've heard the gospel, and then they say in response, Jesus is Lord and God. Okay? To say something twice in, in, in Hebrew culture is to emphasize its truth. So sometimes Jesus will say, truly, truly. Especially you, you read that in the book of John. Truly, truly. Verily, verily, I say to you. Those, those double words are, are meant to emphasize the truth of the matter. For, for this person to say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, it's to emphasize that they truly believe, or at least they think they do, that Jesus is Lord. And to call him Lord in this way is to call him God. And, and if this man is God, then he is the Christ. Are you following the logic here? Do you see what's happening? Jesus is telling us that there are people that believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and yet will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, now on the one hand, I think we kind of get this. We probably have some, some cognitive dissonance happening in our minds right now. On the one hand, we understand this, because James 2.19 says, even the demons believe that God is one, and they shudder, they tremble. So we know, at least kind of on the surface, that simply believing that God exists isn't saving faith. Simply believing that Jesus existed is not saving faith. Even the belief that he died for our sins is not sufficient to get you into the kingdom of heaven. Neither is believing that he is the Christ, that he is God, that he is Lord. None of those beliefs is sufficient for entry into the kingdom of heaven. Now, those are necessary beliefs, okay? Those are necessary beliefs. But there is a broad chasm between necessary and sufficient. Your car's engine is necessary to get you from point A to point B, right? But it's not sufficient. The engine alone isn't sufficient. Your heart is necessary for your survival. But your heart beating in your chest is not a sufficient condition for your survival. Understanding and believing and confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the only Son of God, is absolutely necessary for your salvation. You must, at some point in your life, make this confession. And yet there are people who have made that confession out loud even, to Jesus' face even, and yet they will not be welcomed into heaven when they die. That, that's what Jesus is saying here in verse 21. This is, this is hard for us. Well, I mean, what does Romans 10.9 say? Right? Anyone who's been to VBS or to Sunday school or has ever been given a tract knows this passage. What does Romans 10.9 say? If you know it, say it with me. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's true. That's the inspired, by the Holy Spirit, inerrant word of God spoken through the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome and given to us in Holy Scripture. And what does Jesus say? Right here. Well, not all. Not everyone 
who says, Lord, Lord, will be saved. What does John 3.16 say? Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And yet, what does Jesus say? Not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will be saved. Is Jesus contradicting John? Is he contradicting Paul? Is the word of God divided against itself? If you haven't already begun to do this as a Christian, today would be a very good time to begin building your faith around more than one or two verses in the Bible. Build it around entire books. Build it around the entire word of God. Let your foundation be the word of God as a whole, not one or two verses. Let me show you why. Look back at Matthew 7, 21 again. Not all who say Jesus is Lord will be saved. But who will be? This isn't hopeless. Somebody's going to be saved. Who will be saved? Look at the second part of the verse. But the one who does the will of my Father. So Romans 10.9 says if you confess Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. But just a few verses later, you have to keep reading in Romans. And you have to keep reading in John. Just a few verses later in Romans, Paul says that the reason Israel is separated from God is because of their disobedience. Their disobedience. That does not negate Romans 10.9. Jesus is not contradicting Romans 10.9. In John 3.16, John says, Whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. But if you keep reading, always keep reading. Look at John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Right? That's a repeat of John 3.16. But then, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, God's word is consistent. Jesus is not contradicting these truths that we cherish, but we need to cherish more truths. There's an old saying from the Reformation that goes like this. I'm not going to read the Latin, okay? Faith alone justifies. Faith alone justifies but not the faith that is alone. Are you following? Faith alone justifies, but not the faith that is alone. That is to say this, true saving faith in Christ is always followed by a life that shows that Christ is Lord. Faith in Christ alone justifies us before God. But that type of faith, that Holy Spirit-given, truly saving faith, is always, always, always accompanied by an obedience to the will of God. And by the will of God there, in verse, in verse 21, he means God's commands. Essentially, to do the will of the Father is to live out in joyful obedience all of the imperatives The commands of the New Testament. All of the one another's. The love one another's and serve one another's and submit to one another's and give to one another's and bear with one another and live in harmony with one another and forgive one another. And all of the moral commands. Flee sexual immorality. Honor marriage. Don't gossip. Don't lie. Don't be a drunk or don't be jealous. Don't be idolatrous. All of the, there's tons 
of New Testament commands that all come from our faith in Christ. They all come from our union with Christ. All of those commands of God are His will for you. And Jesus is saying, we must obey Him. This isn't optional. To to neglect, to live in obedience to God is to neglect Jesus Christ Himself. Why? Well, because to truly have faith in Christ means to die to yourself and be raised up in Him. And if you are in Christ, if you're unified with Christ, your desires will begin to align with His and your life's purpose will be to glorify God. Those who call Jesus their Lord will live as if that's true. They'll live in obedience to Him. him. Those who call Jesus Lord and yet their lives consistently show otherwise, as Jesus is saying, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The second part of this passage is is like the first. It's a follow-up. It kind of gets deeper into our lives. The second part says this, there will be many people who both confess Christ and do works in his name. Works that many people would consider God-glorifying works. And yet they will not be saved. Look at verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? But look at verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here is someone with a right confession. Okay, so they're confessing Jesus says the Christ, they know who he is. And they're doing miraculous works in the name of Christ. And yet Jesus is saying, they're not saved. On the day of judgment, that's what he means by on that day, in verse 22. On the day of judgment, they'll come to Christ, the judge, and they will make their case. They'll call him Lord, twice. And they'll profess that he is the Christ, and they'll show him their their resume, if you will, of all the powerful things that they did, all of the miraculous things that they did. And they did it in his name, even. And they'll be turned away, and they will suffer eternally in hell apart from Christ. What's going on here? Well, the, the key to understanding Jesus' response in verse 23 is that word, new. I never knew you. Charles Spurgeon said, There is more thunder in those four words than there ever was in the most terrible tempest that rolled over your heads. I could never write that myself. (laughs) More thunder in those four words than there ever was in any thunderstorm you ever heard. Do you feel the thunder in those four words? I never knew you. The reason that these people are not welcomed into the kingdom of God on judgment day is not because they said, Lord, Lord. And it's not because they did mighty works. The reason they are not welcomed in is because why? Because Jesus says he never knew them. 
This is not to say that there are some people roaming the earth that God doesn't know about. That's that's not what's going on here. Don't think of this as, as stowaways on a ship that the captain doesn't know are there. And they get to their destination and he just turns them away. That's not what's happening. This this knowledge is not just an intellectual knowledge. It it has nothing to do with God's awareness or his all-knowingness. God knows everyone. God knows everything. He he knows the, the number of hairs on our heads, doesn't he? He knows the sparrows in the fields. He knows the the flowers and what they need. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. And Jesus told us earlier in the sermon on the mount that that God sends rain on who? The the just and the unjust. So he provides for, for his people and for those people who are not his people. He knows what we all need. He formed us all in the womb. He has breathed life into everyone who lives. So there are not people God is unaware of. Even in this passage, I think it's kind of clear that that's true. God knows that these people worked. He knows that they prophesied. He knows their motives. He knows their hearts. And yet Jesus says he never knew them, knew them. There is a knowledge that God has of his children that is unlike the way he knows others. Right? You could probably identify with that. He knows his children differently, intimately. Listen to the way that God talks about Israel in the book of Amos. Amos 3, 2. He says to Israel, You only, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, does God know the Egyptians, yeah, and the Greeks, and the kingdoms in India and Persia. He knows all about them. Remember, he knew the Ninevites. He knew of them. Doesn't he know, even at this time, as this was being written, of the indigenous peoples in in the Americas? He does. But what does he say here through Amos the prophet? You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Until Jesus came, Abraham's descendants through the line of Jacob were the only people for whom God could say, I am their God and they are my people. These are the only people God says he knows. This this type of knowledge is what we call covenant knowledge. Those who are known by God in this way are bound to him the way that a husband and a wife are bound together. Think of how the Bible says that Adam knew his wife. It's intimate. It's exclusive. There is a covenant bond that unites them. In the same way that God knows his people in the Old Testament, he knows his people in the New Testament. Right? God doesn't change. He's revealed that the, the deeper mysteries of who he is is revealed in Jesus Christ, but he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. So it shouldn't surprise us to see Christians described as people whom God knows in this way. 1 Corinthians 8.3, there's a, a, 
shotgun pattern of passages that I'm going to share with you. 1 Corinthians 8.3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. See that? Known. Look at Galatians 4.9. Paul says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? See what Paul's doing? He's, he's making a point. What could he have done here when he wrote, now that you've come to know God? He could have just scratched that out, scribbled it out, and then said, rather to be known by God or just to be known by God. And he didn't. He allowed us to see that this is the more important truth. That when we are known by God, then we can know God. Jesus says in John ten fourteen, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then look at 2 Timothy two nineteen. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. You see it? The, the intimacy, the way the Lord knows those who are his, the shepherd knows his sheep. If anyone loves God, it's because he is known by God. It, it is our being known by God that causes us to move forward in holiness and obedience to him. It's a causal relationship. God's knowledge of us isn't passive. It's active. It's intimate. It is effectual. Listen carefully. I want to make sure you get this. Our saving knowledge of him is rooted in his saving knowledge of us. Our saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is rooted in his saving knowledge of us. So when Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. You see what he's saying to these people? We are not covenanted together. We're not bound together. You're not in union with me. You haven't been brought to new life in me. There are some who do works in the name of Christ. They speak, presumably, on his behalf. And they cast out demons. They do mighty works as if they were representing Jesus Christ himself. And yet they are not representing Christ because they're not known by Christ. And we could easily apply this to the church today, couldn't we? You can visit the sick. You can fill the pulpit. You can preach. You can teach a Sunday school class. You can serve in the nursery. You can run a committee. You can be at this church building every single day and not be known by Christ. See what's going on here? In the first part, there are people who claim Christ but are cast away from him because they're disobedient. They haven't been born again into Christ and so they willfully disobey him. Second level, I think, is probably a lot more concerning for a lot of us here. Regular church attenders, folks who serve the church and greet and usher and preach and teach and fix meals. These are just faithful church people. Jesus is saying, even in this group, there are some that are not known by God. 
and are not truly following Christ. So the question then, and I hope you're asking this question because this was my question this week. Well, how can I know that I'm known? Don't you want to know? (laughs) How can I have assurance that I'm truly following Christ? Because if I don't, then Jesus has left me hanging. Well, listen, these are the first things I think we can know from this text. If your security is your confession of Christ or your work for Christ, those are false foundations. You are not saved because you say Jesus is Lord. All who say Jesus is, all who confess that are saved is what we have been learning, but you are not saved because you say Christ is Lord. You are saved by faith when your faith is the type that proves Christ is Lord in your life. The faith is saving. The faith is saving, but it's proving. Abraham's faith was not credited to him, credited to him as righteousness simply because he said, okay, God, I'll follow you, follow you to Canaan, and then went back to shepherding his dad's flocks in Haran. His faith was credited to him, that is a hard word, it, his faith was credited to him as righteousness when he showed his faith through obedience. And he followed God into the unknown. Another false foundation is your work for Christ. If if you think you are secure in Christ because of all the ways that you serve the church, that is a false foundation. You have false assurance. Your work for Christ is meant to be evidence of your love for Christ. Think of Judas for a minute. He's a good case, test case. He followed Jesus for three years, at least. During that time, he was sent out by Jesus with the other disciples. And we'll see in Matthew what he was doing. He was healing the sick, raising the dead. Not even false prophets today can raise the dead. He was raising the dead. He was cleansing lepers and casting out demons, all the while proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here. Jesus is the king. Repent and believe. That's Judas. You got nothing on Judas. Judas operated in this way as a messenger of Christ for three years. And he took the risk of being persecuted for Christ, fully knowing the danger of following Christ. And yet, did he love Jesus? Not did he serve Jesus. Did he love him? Not did he believe that he was the Christ. Did Judas love Jesus? Jesus. Well, we find out at the end, don't we? Even when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, the disciples still didn't know what was going on. It's not like when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, and the disciples are like, Judas. They didn't know. What was their response? Is it me? Am I, Lord, am I the one? They had no idea. And yet, it didn't take long. You know the story of Judas. Turns out Jesus was right. You cannot love Jesus and money. Judas had chosen to serve money rather than Christ. He chose the one he loved more. And it wasn't Jesus. 
Judas did not love Jesus. And so in the end, he was cast away. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, look at this passage with me. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is really the issue here, isn't it? If we are confessing Jesus as the Christ without loving Christ, we aren't submitting to him as Lord. If we are serving in the name of Christ without love for Christ, we are not serving Christ. To, to truly do the will of God means to first love him. And to love him means to respond to the love that he has shown us. To love him means to enter by faith into the covenant relationship that he has initiated with you. And then to abide there, to stay there, to dwell there for the rest of your life. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 We love him because he has known us and he's called us and he's made us righteous before God through his work on the cross. That's what Jesus has done and that's why we love him. When you... When you truly grasp this, when you truly grasp the love of Christ for you, it is displayed in his work for you. This issue of assurance will not be an issue for you. If you truly know what Christ has done for you and you're responding in love to him, you will not battle with despair or doubt about your salvation. You will not lack assurance because your every motivation in service to Christ will spring out of your love for him, which flows from his love for you. Look at what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5. He puts it this way. For the love of Christ controls us. <laughs> He's talking about he and the other apostles. The, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It's the gospel, right? So Paul understands the gospel of Jesus Christ deeply. And he understands that that gospel is God's love for him. And that controls everything he does. The love of Christ, that, that initiating love of God, the God who knows Paul and loves Paul that love of Christ controls Paul Paul proclaims the gospel to unbelievers because he's controlled by the love of Christ his every waking minute is lived in response to the love of Christ he dies to himself every day because he is controlled by the love of Christ and you when you read Paul's letters you never get the sense that he is afraid that he might be cast away from Christ on Judgment Day. Never. 
Read 2 Timothy this week, the last book he wrote. All right, it's short. And when, you, when you're reading it, you're going to get to this passage, 2 Timothy 4.18. This is one of the last sentences that we have that Paul wrote. He says, the Lord will rescue me. The Lord will rescue me. Not might. Not I think he will. Not I hope he will. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. May we all be able to say that at the end of our lives. The Lord will rescue me. That's assurance, isn't it? Do do you hear his confidence in Christ? There is no doubt in his salvation because he knows all the way down to the core of who he is that his every prophetic word, every miracle, every time he preached, every time he taught, everything he did in the name of Christ, he knows where it came from. He knows it came out of his love for Christ because he knows that Christ loved him first. Paul is not afraid. He's not afraid that that God will one day say, depart from me, I never knew you because he knows he is known. And he knows that he is known by God because the love of Christ compels him in everything. It's the only place you get that. Listen, if anything you do in the name of Christ, you do for your own promotion, it's worthless. Jesus says it's lawlessness. It's sin. Dustin, your first day here, if you are pursuing pastoral ministry so you can have a platform There will be no reward. Your work is lawlessness. There will be no good fruit from your work. But if your desire to shepherd the flock of God comes from your love for the chief shepherd, you can have the same confidence, the same boasting in Christ, the same joy in Christ that Paul has. And by the grace of God, your ministry will bear fruit. And I want to challenge you this morning in front of everybody, and I hope you will challenge me to cling to Christ himself more than your natural abilities, more than your talents, even more than your grasp of theology. Let your work be in the spirit that you have in Christ. Del Cero, if you're teaching Sunday school or you're working the kitchen or you're cleaning toilets in the name of Christ and your motivation comes from anywhere but your love for Christ, you gain nothing. If you've been coming to church your whole life because that's just what you do and it's not because because Christ is who you love, then your worship is in vain. Hear the words of our Savior. Repent of your own empty words. Repent of your vanity and turn to Christ. You can do that today. You can begin today, right now, to have confidence in Christ rather than yourself. And so today, you can begin to have real assurance. Assurance that you've never had before. Because you weren't rooted in Him. But that can begin today. Friends, difficult passages like this should not and are not meant to cause us to despair. 
Yes, they should cause us to examine ourselves. Absolutely. Yes, they should cause us to repent where we are in sin. Yes, Christ's thunderous words from verse 23 should cause us to tremble. But we should not despair. When you hear this loving warning from our Savior and it causes you to run to Him, Christ's warning has served its purpose. You have nothing to fear if you're in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask again that we would never hear those words. And we know now, after looking to your word, that our hearts have got to be turned to you, that, that we have to be turned to Christ, our Savior, truly and deeply, all the way to our core. That there can be nothing in competition with Jesus Christ in our hearts. Would you stir in all of us a love for Christ that is unmatched? A love for Christ that is greater than our love for anything else. Greater than our love for our families or our children or our careers or our homes or our money or our status. Let us count everything as rubbish compared to knowing Christ and being known by Christ. Yes, it's in Jesus' name. Amen.